Welcome to the 318th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Thank you for listening. I know last week's episode was a little little bit hairy perhaps for some of you because I expressed my true opinions on a few topics, but uh, hey, that's just, you know, that's what you do when you have a free podcast as you express your opinions and uh, to the best of your knowledge. I've been practicing medicine for a long time, 1987 to be exact, and I see patients unlike a lot of physicians out there. I've seen patients every day since that 1987 graduation, and I go to the hospital And I take care of all kinds of patients, primary care and cardiology, as well as I've changed my practice because of what I've learned that nutrition and exercise is a vital component to reversing lifestyle diseases and improving longevity. And when it comes to infectious diseases, uh, I've had a few comments that maybe I should keep my nose out of that. But, you know, again, as a practicing physician, I do treat infectious diseases and am around it and exposed to it. And so I do have a valid opinion. So... I shared it. That was it. But today we're back to movement. We're back to move your body because just like a car, if you leave it in the garage, the tires go flat and things start to rush. You got to move it or lose it. Uh, You can be as smart as a whip and read all kinds of books. And if you never step outside, you never move your joints, they're going to freeze. A lot of people, their end comes because they fall and break a hip. Um, they, the last years of their lives are lived at home and in isolation because they can't get out and move. Or maybe you're just young and you can't play with your kids or your grandkids. So movement is essential to health. Movement is not essential to weight loss. Movement helps maintain weight loss, but movement is essential to health. So today I am pleased to have Katie Bowman on the podcast. Katie is a biomechanist. She has written several books, including the most recent book, Grow Wild, where she talks about how to change your living environment as a family to be more conducive for movement and activity. She has written Dynamic Aging, Fix Your Feet, Move Your DNA, Movement Matters, Catch the Drift, Movement. And I have learned a lot about her since I changed my, or I learned a lot from her, I'm sorry. I did learn a lot about her as well, but... I have learned a lot from her and applied it to my practice in the assessment of my patients and their mobility. When I first changed the practice, it was all about getting people moving. You know, I, when I started running marathons in 2000, I started putting the pictures of my medals in my shirt. I would frame them and put them in the office, hoping to inspire people to move, to run. Never really did. When I changed the practice, people started to come to the practice because they were interested in wellness and interested in move their body. And I have several marathon runners and triathletes and swimmers in the practice that um, are very good. Yoga people, yoga instructors, several yoga instructors, gymnasts, the whole nine yards. So people are very interested in movement. But I also have people that need uh, or perhaps maybe are moved the same things or a limit number of things And they need assessment to keep from falling or to be more mobile or to be able to play. And again, getting off the ground is essential for longevity. Grip strength, essential for longevity. And so uh, Katie and I are going to discuss what a biomechanist is, as well as uh, some very important aspects of movement. 
And so I hope you enjoy the podcast. I will leave references to her books. Uh, I'll leave references to her website, how you might get a hold of her. She runs several programs where she can help people uh, in their daily movement activities as well. So I do hope you enjoy the podcast as much as I enjoyed having her on the podcast. Again, she is a wealth of information as well as a very positive being. So without further ado, please enjoy. Well, I'd like to welcome you, Katie Bowman, to the podcast. And again, thank you for taking time to speak with, with me. Um, your assistant um, is very prompt, and she even sent me how to say biomechanist uh, <laughs> on, uh, on, the, uh, on the email. And I had to laugh. I'm a West Virginian. And, uh, you know, phonics is relatively new to West Virginia. So, you know, it was... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, my husband, my uh, my son-in-law has a, a Croatian name, Minorich, and so we we uh, minor itch, you know, as opposed to you know how it's actually spelled. So I was very appreciative that she gave me um, uh, how to say what you do, and and so let's just start by that, you know, uh, a biomechanist. You know, do I I can't refer? How do I refer somebody to somebody like you? Are you one of a kind, or are there more than you? Uh, um, how did this get started? Well, biomechanics is a university program. It's a field of study. Um, so there's more than one, thank goodness. <laughs> but I would say that biomechanists, they tend to um, go into orthopedic design. So, you know, if, if people are working with um, orthopedic devices, it's usually a biomechanist on the other end who who is puts their education. So bio is living systems. Mechanics are physical forces, usually coming from Newtonian mechanics, but it's the interface of those two fields together. Um, it's an interdisciplinary field, so to speak. It's it's how do physical forces affect living systems? Because we're used to thinking of health usually in terms of biochemistry. So chem and mech, those are the same four letters. And it's one of the reasons she probably says, clarifies biomechanist because people read it quickly and think biochemist. And so chemistry is looking at how chemical compounds are affecting, you know, we, with health, we tend to read what's easiest to see, and that's going to be blood lipid panels and, and, and chemistry that we can look at through microscopes. The invention of microscopes was a big influencer in why medicine is so chemistry dependent versus physical forces dependent because forces are invisible. It's really challenging to measure them. You know, they're mostly in the form of equations, but now through nanotechnology, they're being more visible to the human eye and humans really being visually dominant in our understanding of the world. When we can see it, you know, we start thinking it matters more. You know, the things that we can see matter more than the things we can't. So um, biomechanists, um, footwear, you know, if you've ever bought a trainer or an athletic shoe, you know, Nike has a major lab full of biomechanists that I've gotten to hang out with, right? So they're looking at what are the aspects of footwear that athletes of different types would need to um, either reduce injury 
or improve performance and ideally the optimize both situations. Um, a lot of sporting equipment um, is, is created and studied and modified by biomechanists who are looking at it for the same reason. You know, why, why do injuries in this group happen? Is it something, it's like the torque or the angles or the loads in their body. How does this piece of equipment um, relate to that? And can we adjust it so that we can reduce or mitigate some of those factors? And then biomechanists can be simply um, theoretical in the sense that, you know, this idea of mechanotransduction that I write about a lot in movie or DNA, this idea that how, how, why does exercise make us better? We're used to thinking about it in the larger, like things that we can measure and see, but really a lot of the reasons it makes us better or well goes down to the genetic level. And so biomechanists are also looking at playing with forces and how that affects things like cellular, cellular behavior and genes. So um, I just happen to really like working with individuals. Um, I studied biomechanics through a kinesiology department. Sometimes biomechanists can study through an engineering department, depending on the way your university or your country is set up. And um, usually we work with, we start, you know, in college, in college, everyone is studying movement, really working with the population of college aged athletes. That's usually your point of view for understanding humans and movement. But, um, you know, there are subfields, you know, I was really interested in gerontology when I was in graduate school. And so there are laboratories that are run through these departments where you are working on physical performance with different groups. There's adaptive exercise. So that's for folks with disabilities who still need, like for when I took that class, I had to spend a week in a wheelchair to really understand me the mechanics of moving and how that affected my body. So then you start thinking of designing buildings, you know, to, to make them more accessible for people who have different movement experiences. And um, I just really love translating technical information about why movement works on the whole person and the, and the part and the cellular level. I like taking some of that technicality and giving it to lay persons um, because I think that we're at a, a point now where everyone needs to understand the technicality to, to get themselves over the hurdle of being able to move more or to, to realize it's, it's not about burning calories. There's way more than simple metabolic arguments to be made for why we need to move. Um, and so I just, that's what I've made that that's sort of, I am a quirky biomechanist in the sense of like, that's what I do with a lot of my time, but I still dabble in equipment design and, you know, consult with different things like that. So that explains in your newest book, um, Grow Wild, some of the contraptions that you have in your house that you were able to come up with that as opposed to um, I have a simple balance beam made out of PVC pipes, and that's about as good as I can put something together. So, <laughs> right. So, yes, I was like, man, how does she come up with some of those things? The hammocks in the room and the raw and all this. Now I understand that part. But what I, you know, um, what I appreciated, and I and I can see through the um, series of books that you have written is again, that sense of applying what you do to the individual and how to make us move better um, without the aid of supports, you know, orthotics and uh, braces and all these things, because there was 
the, 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 the standard medical community is, okay, we'll just put you in, you, your fat feet, we'll put you in over pronation shoes and you have a neck pain. We'll put you in a, uh, we'll put you in a soft collar. You have an elbow pain. We'll put it, we'll put a brace on you. And so it ends up just causing degeneration as opposed to rehabilitation in most parts. There, there is obviously a reason for, uh, or a time and a place for it, but chronically it tends to make us worse. And so your books really address that. Um, one of the first things that, that came to, you know, was the aha moment for me. Um, I was, um, I born with a club foot and back in 1962, they put you in a cast and then put you in hard shoes for the next, whatever years, you know, till I was in fourth grade, I wore these hard shoes and I resulted in flat feet. And when I took up running in my forties, I was, I had flat feet running with. And so, you know, through some other people, I was like, oh, well, you can develop these arches by strengthening your muscle. And one thing led to another. Um, but I loved when you talked about in the, in the book, I think we can start with a couple. And I, I want to skip around your, all your books are great. So I want to skip around a little bit if we can, but fix your feet. Um, again, near and dear to my heart because of flat feet and all these different things. And um, you know, um, you, it, it, I find this, and I said it on a podcast before, but my father, um, m- my parents are not medical at all. And my dad, one day, uh, when he was early eighties, probably or late seventies, he said, so why are my toes curly? And I was like, I'm a cardiologist. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, you know, I sent you up to all these years of school. And the only question I've ever asked you is why are my toes curling? Well, my dad passed away in 2012 of Alzheimer's and I never got to tell him now I know why his toes mm-hmm. are curly. So it, you know, it's like, so I, I, you know, when I read that, it's like, damn, now I know. <laughs> um, and you know, wearing high heels, you know, you talked about changing your DNA that you, we actually, you know, I tell people, you just need to scratch your calves, you know, and, and mobility, but it's not that easy. Well, no, there's, there's, there's a lot of adaptation that happens to it. You know, like I think there, it's hard to discern or I guess to tease the difference between things are, mal- you are malleable. The human body is malleable and adjustable, but also how many years it's been adjusted into one position. And the adaptations are not, um, they're, 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 they're deeper. It's, they're not genetic per se, but, but they, um, you know, your tissue does adapt. It's not only stiff muscle, it can be changes in tendon length. And there is a stepwise approach to, addressing the multiple tissues involved. So stretching can definitely be part of the solution. Um, But again, it does need to be stepwise because if you've worn, I mean, I don't know that many people who've worn two to three inch high heels most of their lives, but I know those people are out there. I have met some of them. It depends. I think it's a generational thing and a career thing. You know, if you went into a professional lifestyle where that uniform was expected and you started early, or I, I mean, even I know I mean, my grandmother, who, you know, was a home most of the time, she was five feet tall and she still wore high heels a lot of the time. So it wasn't even perfect. I mean, it was just her choice, but had to deal with a lot of foot problems later on because she had sort of grown up in heels and, and stretching needs to be graduated and needs to take place over a longer period of time, as does transition of shoes, like, right, even coming down in height over a period of time. And then it's often not only the calves, you know, you're going to be looking at 
load changes, postural changes that are going up above the knee. It's going to be in, in the hips and the spine and the pelvic tilt and even the rib cage position, all because of what your body has to do to stay upright when you've changed the incline of what's underfoot for hours and hours and years and thousands and thousands of steps. So it's just, it's simple, but it's not always easy. There's some nuance that's needed to make sure that we're stretching and strengthening in a way that ultimately takes us to improvement and not to more injury. In my practice, um, well, my the age range of the practice is uh, 30, 33, 32 to 98. And when the older uh, people come in, typically, you know, people are <laughs> leaning forward and I have them stand up and uh, in their bare feet. And that's, you know, where, where's the weight of your feet? Where, you know, where do you, where do you find, can you raise the front part of your feet up? And, you know, so many people are unstable. I, I live in Florida and it's the, you know, we have a lot of older people and there's so many injuries when it comes to walking over parking curb, you know, those little things where you park. Um, and, you know, you point out very eloquently that most people are falling forward. Uh, so by the time they get up out of the chair, they're usually bent over, they kind of get it up then lean forward and go and you know, they're, they're just chasing their head, right? Chasing, chasing their the rest of their body. So um, give me a little bit of a, you know, um, an, an assessment as far as you know, uh, we talked, you, you know, you talk about what we our feet are like, like our hands, we have a similar, the same joints and, and how you might line somebody up that came in and say, like, I just, you know, I keep falling over the parking curbs. Oh, so what would I do in that case? Well, yeah, I think it is nice to stand up against a wall every now and then. And um, I'm just thinking of, you know, my, my father was older too. Um, he passed away a few years ago, but when he was 89, I would take him to the doctor and the same thing, you know, your, your, your medical, um, height measurements are static against a wall. And so you're actually not measuring someone's height in an X, X axis when they can, if they can't stand up straight, you're, you're sort of measuring the height of where their head is falling forward too. So my dad was like, I'm shrinking. Every time I come, I'm shrinking. So I was saying, you know, if we had a soft measuring tape, you would see that your height hasn't changed. Your height is just now projected forward um, and so that's not being picked up in a measure that takes your height straight up. So I love to show people that in general and to show how that relates to foot pain, because where when people have foot pain, oftentimes, or let's say that they're tripping, often what's happening is they cannot pick the front of their foot up. So that it's called dorsiflexion. It's the fact that the ankle joint can get smaller than 90 degrees. Um, and that is required to be able to take a step without uh, tripping. Slipping and tripping are the two mechanisms biomechanically that we would sort falls into. It's one usually or the other. Mm -hmm. So with tripping, there's a lack of dorsiflexion. And there's a lot of you know work on like the neurology of why people can't pick their feet up. But oftentimes, it's quite simple. Your weight is on the front of your foot. You're sort of pinning the front of your foot down by how you are carrying the rest of your body. So many times with tripping, I won't even start necessarily with the foot. I'll, st or st I'll start with tuning you into where are you carrying your torso when you are walking? So being able to stand upright, getting the shoulders and the head, if, if they can go against that wall. Um, and if they can't go against that wall, 
point that out and say, your new exercise is to get up against a wall five or six times a day and work your torso back to it. Or if for people who are really flexed forward or hinged forward, to go to a doorway, stand inside of it with your arm, right arm or left arm, reaching to the jam or the wall to the side and crawling your fingers up where that will give you leverage to be able to start working the thoracic spine upright. It's usually the thoracic spine that's curled forward and the head forward. Once you've done that, once you've become aware of how forward you might be pinning the front of your foot down, the second thing is to look at what else pins the front of the foot down. And in this case, it is very tight calves, very tight lower leg muscles will point the foot but when your foot's flat on the ground, it just presses the front of the foot down. And so when you encounter that curb, you tend to kick it with your toes versus clear it. So we have a particular stretch that we call the calf stretch, where I'm actually doing it right now as we're talking, mm -hmm. because it's just so um, impactful. And that is to find something. We have a foam dome that we use, but you could also take a towel or a yoga mat and roll it up. Put your heel on the ground and put the ball, the front of one foot up. So you've essentially got an uphill pointing foot and then step forward with the other foot. And what you will feel is usually the back of that leg, its tendency to really want to point the toes downhill versus this uphill position. And then you marry those two exercises. You do that calf stretch while you're also trying to stand your body upright. And in this way, you're working on a very specific mechanical risk factor for tripping. It is tight calves and that forward posture. So like that would be a simple thing that everyone could work on. Yeah, that's, that's actually, that's actually very, very, very good. I, um, like I told you before we started, I have a simple I don't know, two and a half, three inch PVC pipe with that stands up. And every morning when I'm having my coffee before I go to run, I stand there <laughs> and wiggle around. And the days I do that, man, I have a great run. The days I skip it, uh, it's not not near as pleasant of, of a run, you know. And and I've done the thing with the shoes as well. I started out, you know, you mentioned Nike, that they designed the shoe to make performance better, push people forward when they're running so that they fall forward because running is more falling than walking. But it's resulted in everybody wearing an elevated heel so that everybody's falling all the time. And so well, and, the flat shoe yeah. takes some, take some doing. Well, and I, and I having uh, had some chance to work with their team there, it's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's interesting that a lot of times the styles and the design are for the sport. You know, it's, it's like if you are playing basketball, you know, and a lot of times they're the design based on the athlete, the, the elite level athlete, you know, you design a basketball shoe for Shaq and, and what Shaq needs landing, you know, leaping up 250, 300 pounds in the air and landing, what he needs to protect his joints, a lot of cushion, a lot of different angle um, or different sports shoes have these features that really relate to the needs of the sport, but we tend to put them on all the time. You know, it, it's just this idea that you're wearing something, you're wearing a piece of sporting equipment that is creating forces that make sense in the short time phenomenon of playing your sport, but we'll just walk to the store in them. And then, yeah. And then we don't really ever 
put back on a shoe that restores a lot of that mobility and forces. So like they are working on a line that's got that, you know, they, they've come up with shoes that are flatter, more flexible. That would be, I guess, for athletes, you consider them a recovery shoe. But for those who aren't doing sports, it's just the idea of their shoes that allow gentle motion and mobility to your foot and ankle and lower leg all the time that you're wearing it. And for the general population, that's what really we need. We need shoes that gently mobilize us all the time so that we can build up um, our energy expenditure and just the mundane non-exercise parts of our day. Just walking through your office, you know, walking um, out to your car is now going to move us more in a way that sets us up to be more physically robust. Yes. And I will point out that on your website, just to the listeners, that you actually have a reference to a whole list of manufacturers that make um, very friendly shoes to, yeah. to help with the uh, day-to-day mobility, which I have bought several pairs of and I'm enjoying them. <laughs> oh, good. So, yeah, they're, they're actually very fun. People say, where'd you get those crazy shoes? And it's like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing um, that I see in my practice, and of course, you, I'm sure you're well aware of the studies that if you cannot get off the floor, yeah. then you have a uh, definite, uh, your longevity is going to be impaired. And so we work on that with with a lot of people as far as getting up and down on the floor. And again, um, you know, Dynamic Aging is a, is a great book. Um, I, I really like that for my practice um, because it goes through a lot of the posture exercises that we talked about. But Growing Wild, you actually have described your house as uh, you've actually transitioned yourself down to the floor. That's right. Well, uh, you know, so right, that's a test. It's, it's looking at your overall um, mobility of really, I would say the lower part of your body and your spine, plus the balance, plus the balance. You know, there's, there's a skill that's required from getting up off the floor. There's a coordination and balance and it requires a suppleness. We think of, um, we think in terms of joints needing to be supple, but it's really all the connective tissue, you know, including your, 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 arterial venous system, right? These tissues as well. We want suppleness, mobility in these tissues so that they can respond to their change in shape as they need to. And when our body stops being able to respond to our need for it to change shape, that comes with an association for lots of um, different ailments. So this is a quite simple test. And I do recommend that people practice it. One way that I practice it is I've just built in floor sitting to our home. Um, I get to work with, you know, many great physical therapists and other practitioners. And I would say it's pretty standard, the belief that we lose the ability to get up and down off the ground as we get older. That's sort of the narrative. But for um, physios who get to do in-home visits, who work with the broader uh, cultural range than people who are just living sort of our particular lifestyle, they have found, you know, when people sleep on the floor or sit on the floor, of course, you've got that built into your day and then you don't see that decline of, ability. You know, certainly things are getting creakier. Um, you know, we have, we have changes as we get older, but they're not the changes that we see in this particular sedentary society. We're sort of accelerating our aging. Um, we're, we're accelerating the aging of our physical processes by not using any physical processes in daily life. So I set myself up 
lots of floor sitting and cushions and balls. And I, we actually sleep on the floor as well because I like that the pressure and the fact that it allows for more uh, joint ranges of motion to be utilized during rest, still restful. Um, yeah, and, and in doing so, I'm sort of living a training to the test. You know, hopefully I can pass that test simply by doing my work or, you know, other chores or other, even relaxation time, a little bit lower to the ground. Yes. I mean, we, you know, we encourage that in the different, in the different ranges of motion. Um, and I think it, I think it's good. You know, when, when my daughter was small, of course, when you have little kids, you're always on the ground with them and then you sure. gradually move up. Um, my, I have a grandson now and, uh, they were in for a visit and my mom's 88 and my mom, I was very impressed because she does yoga and because, you know, we keep her doing this. She was able to get down on the ground with, with my, you know, one-year-old grandson, get back up, do those movements and, uh, and not, you know, in such a way that she wasn't hurt. It wasn't foreign to her because mm-hmm. she does do those movements on a regular basis. So I, I think it's, it's really good. But then I have people that were told, oh, you can't. You know, I mean, we, I guess in this practice, we do, we dispel more you can't or you should never. And it's like, well, if you never move something, it's going to atrophy and stiffen and, you know, and, and, and all of the above. Um, obviously, we can't do it abruptly, but, you know, we try to stay away from nevers and can'ts and, you know, don't ever. Um, well, I think that's also a big motivator for why I do what I do, because I think that a lot of, the don'ts and bewares and, you know, should nevers that come with, especially that come with those who are dealing with pain and disease. That one of the reasons those exist, I think, is because there's no guidance system for graduated movement for the individual where they can sort of work themselves through a version that works for them in a step-by-step way assessing for progress. That system doesn't really exist outside of, you know, an acute injury and physical therapy, and then you're done. You know, this idea that we all need more movement, but there's no place. So I thought, well, I, my qualifications make it so that I can work different people with different ailments through step-by-step. And can I make it widespread enough where people can still self-guide, but knowing that they understand why that limitation was put into place and what maybe their practitioner really wanted. Well, really, I don't want you pulling this out or accidentally going too far, you know, like clarifying the language so that we don't end up losing all our mobility just because of this small one in case, worst case scenario, because that not moving comes with its own set of then further ailments. And we're just not, we're not looking at the risks close enough of not moving these parts. Um, I, I think that those really exist. Yeah, I think, you know, um, I, again, I changed my practice to a limited number of people membership practice so that I could spend more time with people. And I think physical therapy is the same way. Again, insurance pays yeah. for a limited number of visits. They try to get people back to perhaps where they were, or at least so that they won't hurt themselves or get out of pain. But it never really addresses the chronic issue that perhaps got them hurt in the first place. Yeah. And um, yeah. Um, you in your in your book, you also in, in a podcast, you talk about um, a little check and I think your husband made a spreadsheet uh, and we went kind of went through that um, of activities of daily living because a lot of people, you know, especially with COVID, I, you know, I'm not a fan of box gyms for the most part. I like people to be outside and experience nature and 
you know, garden and do all kinds of, of things. It doesn't have to be, you know, a, a, a machine that's one size fits all and do this for 30 minutes and you're going to be all right. Um, but you have a, a wonderful chart on your website and you talk about it in your book um, of, you know, a daily assessment of the activities you do on a regular basis and what you move. And we actually went through in one of my nutrition, I teach two nutrition classes a week, but we always do something else. And I actually went through and had people, let's, let's go through what, what did you do today? Uh, or what did you do yesterday? And, you know, if you'd like to go through some of the things that would be great as far as the, you know, the head and the arms and, you know, how you grip and, you know, well, right. So I think people are used to, um, and I, so I'm currently working on a paper right now for physicians on how to prescribe exercise because the public health sector is like, we need to get more physicians prescribing exercise. Like the message is out there, but it's not linking up. Um, but there's not a lot of training, as I understand, for physicians and exercise prescription, which is fine, um, except... And so what happens is the prescriptions all end up, if they do come down, which is very rare, when they do come down, it's three times a week for 30 minutes. You know, it's like these really, it's like the prescriptions that we were working on in the early 90s. You know, it's like, it's really a simplified version. It's a quick exercise. It is. It is. And it was just like, well, there's a lot of different ways to do this. And, and what we've found is this method of the, of that classic exercise prescription works really well in research design to test outcomes. It does not work for the average person trying to live a life and, and figure out what they enjoy and where they enjoy doing it and with whom they enjoy doing it. So um, that activities section, it was originally in Grow Wild. I'm working on a non you know, non-kid centric version that will go in my next book for adults. But it's this idea of, you know, if you were to look at your dietary chart, what did you eat today? What did you eat this week? It wouldn't just be, did you eat yes or no? How many minutes did you eat? You know, you could look at, it could have macronutrients. Like, did you eat some fat and some protein and carbohydrate? But we know that nutrition is quite nuanced. You know, there are macro and micro nutrients, there's water, there's all these sorts of things that you need. And really that the, the impact of nutrients the way it works and what deems these elements, these chemical compounds, nutri nutrients is how they work in unison. So you can't, you can have something that is nutritious, a single food like kale. I always use kale. I use it in move your DNA because it was like sort of the pinnacle nutritious food. But if you eat that in isolation, you're not going to be well. It does not meet all of your needs. So there's this ratio and there's different diseases that arise in different people when Calories are adequate, but ratios are off. So that's essentially at the heart of nutritional, dietary nutritional science. So my work is to really say movement works the same way as nutritional, dietary nutritional science. It works more like sunlight. It's an input that's going in, that's affecting bio, your biochemistry. Your biomechanics end up affecting your biochemistry directly through a process of mechanotransduction. But how do you, what are the movement foods? No one's really given us a list of movement foods. And so we tend to think of those as sports, you know, make sure you do some running and some cycling and some dancing and some jumping. But really it works more like you want to make sure that all your parts are being moved or toggled. So, um, you know, um, 
what was your leg position most like today? You know, so even you might love cycling, but if you sit all day at work and you're sitting on your bike afterwards, you, it might be akin to eating too much sitting. You might be taking too much seated exercise. So maybe diversify, add a different movement food and look for something that is a little bit more weight bearing, you know, that, so like uh, you're, I'm always thinking of all tissues, you know, you're thinking of your cardiovascular system, but you're also thinking about bone. You're also thinking about balance and practical skills. It's very challenging all the different frameworks that need to be met for wellness and movement because people have developed different systems and some of them are thermodynamic. Some of them are addressing how many calories a movement expends to make it good or not. But a bone researcher will be like, well, you might've done three hours of swimming today and met your cardiovascular requirement, your metabolic requirement, but your bones are going to atrophy. You, you needed this other load here. So that I'm breaking out things like, are your shoulders moving? Is your grip strength being challenged? Is your balance being challenged? Are you getting a dose of nature or outside? Um, is what you're walking on always flat or is there any terrain taking you uphill or challenging your balance? Um, are your eyes able to see to a distance? You know, I'm trying to even get into eye tissue health as well, which is also muscle oriented. Um, right, exactly. I also, I have my contacts in so you can't see my seven millimeter glasses yeah. that, that I got from putting on my hours to study. And then also, you know, I, the way that I approach cardiovascular movement is to normalize it to every other joint range of motion and say, has your heart and lungs gone through a full range of motion today or have they not? Because then you can expect the same stiffness if you don't take your hips and knees through their full range of motion because we tend to separate them out but mechanically the process is the same movement is changing the position of these vessels and these um smooth muscle and skeletal muscle and cardiac muscle and when you look at them as the same versus looking at them as diff different you don't sort them all by movement you'll miss really, I think, all the movement nutrients that you need. So hence the chart. The chart makes it easy. Chart makes it easy to see. I didn't do much. I didn't do anything with my arms today. They were down by my side all day. I need to go out and do something or simply just reach them up and overhead. You know, just while I'm standing here, I'm going to stretch my arms up and over. Yeah, I think and it, it is amazing. Again, when I see that walks in the door, um, we have, again, frozen shoulders, rotator yeah. cuffs, and, oh, we'll just, we'll just do surgery on that. Or... <laughs> Yeah. You know, we can, and I always, you know, we always try to talk. It's like the original equipment is the best thing you're ever going to get. So how can we preserve or make the, the original equipment better as opposed to, again, make, uh, creating more, more, um, more, you know, more scar tissue. Yeah. The, um, you know, the other thing that we, um, we, oh, I, I think another uh, thing I, I liked when you, you know, you talked about, um, you know, it's back to your furniture and, and your floor space, but you talk about junk furniture, like junk food, which I thought was a great analogy. Well, I mean, if you were trying to make dietary changes, oftentimes what this includes is removing the junk food from your house. You know, it's very hard when you're trying to start changing your lifestyle to eat differently to have a house full of foods that you don't want to eat anymore, that's really the key to the change. It's not to walk by those things and just, you know, muster the willpower to not eat them. It's to 
set up your environment for success. And so I think more people are like, yeah, that's right. I get rid of the ice cream. I get rid, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, or I'm at least stocking vegetable. I'm, I'm, I'm filling my refrigerator and my counter with vegetables. I'm going to put them out. I'm going to make a giant bowl of salad for us all to eat. Oh, that's my trick. My trick is to make a giant bowl of salad and leave it out. And we just munch, anyone can just take a spoonful of it. But if I don't do that, you know, the, the mustering up to make, you know, multiple individual vegetable meals is harder. It's easier just to set myself up for success. So with furniture, it's the same way. If you look, if you, if you had written on your new year's resolutions a few months ago, or maybe every day in your mind, it's like, Oh, I need to move more. I know I would like to be able to walk better, whatever your individual goal towards movement is. If you've got that on your to-do list, take a look at your movement food, so to speak, that your house is stocked with. I mean, how many chairs are there? Where are you supposed to do this movement? Do you, at the beginning of the pandemic, I wrote a series of articles like right now, today, you need to create a movement space in your home that's out there in front of your face that has a mat that stays out all the time. You need to clear a space for yourself because you're not going to move if you don't do this. You're going to be called to the the chair version of ice cream that's everywhere and you're not going to be able because we have these internal energy conservation programs that's going to keep you seated. Your, your, your environment's working against you. The only energy that you're going to have to muster is changing the environment. And once you've changed it, then the environment can work on you. Beckoning more movement. I'm going to put, that's why I have so many exercise pieces around my house. That's why you have your balance beam out because you're going to get your coffee anyway. So you might as well do it standing on a balance beam or stretching your calves. It's, it's sort of the equivalent to putting out that good food that you want everyone to eat. You're just setting yourself up environmentally. We're animals. We are responding much more to our environment than we realized. You're not really choosing to do half of what you do every day. You're reflexively doing it in response to the choices that you made one or 10 years ago. So if you come to this decision that you need this physical overhaul, don't overlook your, your dwelling. Don't overlook the environment in which you're in most often to say, what about this environment is reminding me that I need to move? So I've got stickers on my phone that remind me of my head position. And I have one on my, posted on my computer, my laptop that says, you know, can you stand up right now? Like little, just reminders from my past self to remind my future self that you wanted to get moving. So little environmental cues are really am I powerful for making a change. You notice that I've been marathon running for um, a lot of years and I run on the roads here in Florida for the most part. And when I started reading your books, I had to laugh because I am very picky about making sure that I was running on a surface that had no change in it. You know, I'm going to run right here because it's the flattest. I, I'm going, I'll go around the holes. I'll uh, do, you know what I mean? And right. then we got into trail running. And one of the things that we did not excel at at all in trail running was obviously the rocks and stones. And, and you look in the uneven environment, you know, I mean, I've walked as a kid. I lived in the, in West Virginia night, you know, I hiked and all this other kind of stuff. And you did all these things, but I went for years flat surface, you know, keep it, keep it simple. And, you know, flat hospital floors and flat this and everything was flat. 
And I went out of my way exercising to keep it flat. And so all of a sudden we did this ultras and it's like, how are these people moving so fast on these boulders? You know, it's like, because we're all over the place and trying, it's like, oh my God, you know, and we've even had people in the run club that we laugh about because they'll trip and we've had several injuries on a lip that was, you know, a quarter inch. Yeah. And uh, so we go out of our way in some, in some respects. I mean, you want to keep an environment safe for people, but we, we made it so safe in a lot of instances that we don't have any challenges either. Yeah. And it's it just balance, right? You, we look for that. I think that even when you're running a trail, you're still looking for the safest route right. coming down a mountain. Like you're always seeking that out. It's just that as the environment, like our homes has become more leveled for everyone's safety, you lose then the ability to negotiate a variety or a variation in that safety. And so that's that's essentially what risk is. You know, it's like with kids, what we've done is removed the playgrounds and made everything so that they can never fall, you know? And, and so then we're like, we're doing this for their safety so no one ever gets hurt. But the flip side of that is the whole world doesn't look like this. These small environments look like this. And now we've also lost the ability to assess risk to, to have the mobilities and strengths necessary to deal with, you know, running like your ankles will have a harder time running on a slight incline for a longer period of time. If you don't practice that. So I've always just said, keep that in mind and make sure some of your training is set up. Even if you want to take most of your steps in that environment, that's safe and injury free, just then add to your program some sort of training supplements, like a, it's like a nutritional supplement. My diet doesn't contain these nutrients that I need. It's like, great. Well, here's your supplement. So exercises are used for supplements in those ways. And then of course you're like, and if you can bust out a meal every now and then that's got these nutrients that maybe you don't like, but your body needs, um, do that every now and then. So you change your palate, you can change your movement palate and preference a little bit as well. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've learned to, you know, love that even more. And, you know, once you get a dose of that, it's a whole, it just changed right. the environment, it, it, a whole new challenge. Yeah, you have a, is this your daughter in the book that uh, is up where high in a tree? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and of course you see that picture, it's like, wow, she's, you know, she's up there pretty high. And, you know, of course, most people today, like you say, the monkey bars are gone, all the different things are gone and God forbid, you know, um, somebody be held liable uh, right. for 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 a slip and fall. So we've really uh, changed it. Um, so somebody has, and, and we'll, I won't take your time up too much more. But if we see a lot of people with their head really forward, mm. and you, you may you alluded to it back to standing up against the wall and trying to get to get their head back, and um, you've talked about the double chin that nobody really wants, but is very, that's a very good analogy uh, I found for straightening the head out for people. Yeah. It's like, get the, cause everybody knows what a double chin is. You know, if you right. say, stick your, you, you know, I, I, when people come in, I'll say, give me your best posture. Yeah. They give you the jet and, uh, yeah, they give you the, you know, they're, everybody's back like this and they're, and they give you the jet. It's like, you know, okay. So is that, your, you know, is that your best one? You know, are you ready? And then, you know, then we kind of go go through it. But, uh, you know, you, you don't sleep and, and I've got rid of my pillow. I don't use a pillow anymore. I had stiff necks and got, you know, you know, people are saying that, and, and everybody talks about, um, I can't find the perfect pillow. And in your opinion, there is not a perfect pillow. Right. It's like perfect chair. Uh, like, <laughs> you know, you're what you're looking, you're looking for the way to be still that is the best for your body. But, um, 
it doesn't really work that way. Your body needs the movement. And so, yeah, like, so I too, I had years of headaches and neck pain and I, and I couldn't figure it out and you're going through different pillows. And then, you know, of course you just have that aha moment. And I'm like, right. My head sort of in front of me, I knew the stretches that would make it better. And I was essentially bringing my head back. So it stacked over my shoulders. I was working on that kyphotic, excessive kyphotic and lordotic curve, too much curve to the upper back and to the neck. Um, and then I was like, well, I don't want to keep doing these stretches. I'm, I'm a very, I'm a person who orients by efficiency. That's probably like a hallmark characteristic of mine. I was like, I don't want to do all these stretches. If every night I'm putting this pillow back underneath my head, which is pushing my head back forward. It was just, I'm like, why do I even have this? Like, you know, and then I looked around, I'm like, all right, a lot of the world doesn't use pillows. Okay. Right. All right. So I got, I got rid of it over time because, you know, you take it out the first night and your neck is aching. You know, it's not used to doing anything except for being propped up. And when you're sleeping, you're effectively doing a stretch for like six hours, seven hours. It's too much. So I was like, well, I'm just going to reduce the height by a little bit. And I just did it over time. I just kept taking more and more height out of my pillow. I kept working on making sure my upper back and my shoulders and my neck were mobile. So I wasn't only changing the pillow. I was making sure my parts were getting more supple so that I could adjust. And then got to the point where I was on, you know, a wadded t-shirt, you know, and, and just got thinner and thinner. And then now I don't need a pillow. I don't, I don't require one. In fact, I can't even tolerate one. You know, sometimes I'll be in a hotel and you put your head down. You're like, oh, this gosh, this is so much more comfortable. And then you put it on and then I have a headache. You know, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and you just rip it out because your, your body in that time is telling you like, no, this is something that doesn't work for me anymore. So yeah, I definitely, definitely weaned off that. And, um, and I'm so thankful I did because headaches were pesky and neck pain is debilitating. You know, when you can't turn your head, it's hard to drive and it's hard to look around and, and be relaxed in a group, you know, when you get that stiff neck. And, and so I really have been there for people who have that frozen shoulder, you know, have to turn their whole torso as a unit. And I um, just, I've worked my way through those things by paying attention to the mechanics of how I spend my time and through an application of a little bit of corrective exercise. And it's been great. Katie, this has been awesome. Um, it's a dream come true to be able to speak with you and hear um, all, all your, all your wisdom. Um, you, are you doing um, live uh, retreats and classes now, or is you, are you still on a bit of a lockdown or how's, how's that going? I know you have some, well, I'm not, yeah, this year, we'll see what this year looks like going forward. Right now, what I'm doing is getting ready to, like, I, I've been working on this idea of how can I help people move more by sending them a daily reminder. So I've been spending more time working on um, creating something where they will, where people will just get a short routine every single day in their inbox where I, you know, I, I get to work with a lot of different physicians and other people in public health who are like, I just want my patients to have something simple to do every day. And, and that seems to be the request. And so, okay, I can create something like that. So I've been 
Yeah. So, um, so I've, I've spent this year working on how to get more people moving versus me moving around, trying to get more people moving in their town. I'm trying to find a more efficient way to see if I can promote a little bit of everyday movement for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yes. Uh, that's, that's fabulous. Um, Again, I'll make a link to all your books. I, I found them all very helpful, uh, entertaining. Your podcast is also excellent. Um, I enjoy uh, listening to those as well when I'm running. And they've uh, given me a lot of good ideas. So keep the, keep the work up, uh, good work up. And again, thank you for what you do. Well, thank you for saying so. And thank you so much for having me to share it today. All right. Take care. Have a nice, nice okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Katie Bowman. Again, I'll make the links in the show note to her website and to her books. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at jamie at drdelaney.com. That's J-A-M-I at drdelaney.com. Please visit the website, drdelaney.com, spell all out, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y, and learn how you can be part of our movement and wellness practice. As to last week's episode, I just wanted to make some final clarifications. I am not against anybody's medical choice. I never turn anybody away from my practice that is that aren't, if they're not whole food plant-based, or if they've had a vaccination, or they like vaccinations, or they don't like vaccinations. My job is to educate people to the best standards that I know of medical practice, and they get to make the ultimate decision. I respect each and every individual's right to decide for themselves what kind of medical care is best for them. Our practice is not for everybody. A lot of our practice has to do with people that actually want to do most of the work and get well. So if you're one of those people who would like some guidance or like some education, but want to do some of the, most of the work themselves because most of the diet and exercise changes people do, it's, it's all um, self-driven, but we like to provide support and reasons for our, our suggestions. So, again, there's a lot of people in this world with a lot of different opinions, and I respect everybody's right to have an opinion. Please email with me with any questions or comments. I uh, will warmly regard them. And, again, be well, move your body, eat plants, fruits, vegetables, whole foods, stay away from the processed food aisle, and I think we'll all be better for it. Thank you again for listening. Good night.